So the topic, as I said a few moments ago, is the comparing mind, the judging mind, the mind that says, I'm not as good, I'm better, there, they don't measure up, wow, they're so far out. And all the, the suffering that is caused by that is enormous. You might take some solace in knowing that uh, in the classical model of enlightenment, this is one of the last things to go. <laughs> in fact, if you're familiar, there are... Um, or if you're not, I'll tell you, there are four stages of enlightenment. A stream-enterer, a once-returner, a non-returner, and a fully enlightened being, an arhat. Until you're an arhat, you have the comparing mind, the judging mind. So if you notice some judgments in your in your mind, you're no higher than the third stage of enlightenment. <clears throat> but don't judge yourself for that. It's okay. You know. We all have to be someplace. And there's some comfort in knowing that this seems to be part of the package. The problem is when we take it personally. Here's the Buddha's words, or some words of the Buddha's, on this topic. <clears throat> One who thinks oneself equal to others, or superior, or inferior, for that very reason disputes. But one who is unmoved under those three conditions for that person, the notions equal, superior, and inferior do not exist. The sage for whom the notions equal and unequal do not exist, would he say, this is true? Or with whom should he dispute, saying, this is false? With whom should he enter into dispute? An accomplished person does not by philosophical view or by thinking become arrogant, for they are not of that sort. One, for one who is free from views such as these, there are no ties. For one who is delivered by understanding, there are no follies. But those who grasp after views and philosophical opinions, they wander about in the world annoying people. <laughs> Sound familiar? We seem to get annoyed a lot, don't we? Or maybe we're actually the annoyers at times. All of this comes from the tendency, the habit of the mind to compare. And it's interesting, perhaps it caught your, your ear, Inferior and superior, okay, that makes sense, but I wonder how the word equal to hit you. What do you mean equal to, you know? 
seems like a pretty, you know, American way of looking at things, all equal, or a kind of egalitarian feeling. Well, we're, we're all equal or all the same. But actually, in the Buddhist approach, the, the heart of the comparing mind is what the Buddha called the conceit of I am where you are reifying a sense of self that then is compared to these other creations of separate selves. Just even in that separation, there is the notion of comparison. And that is why, until you're a fully enlightened being, there is still some, kind, some tendency to compare because at that last stage, not just glimpses of seeing through that separateness, which uh, many people have had, probably a number of people in this room, um, but to live with that understanding on a continuous basis and not forget for a moment that this idea of being a separate self is uh, simply delusion. So how to understand this, how to work with this skillfully, because it's so painful, isn't it? When does it come up for you? you know, so many different ways it can come up, you know, oh, my job isn't as good as so-and-so's, or at my workplace I'm not as good as, or I'm certainly better than them, or around relationships, or around um, our being who we are, you know, my body, my body, you know. <laughs> My mind, ooh, my mind, you know, my emotional life, yes, I'm somebody who really feels their emotions deeply, or I'm somebody who just can't feel a thing, you know, or, gosh, you know, why can't they feel anything, you know, or enough emotion already, you know, wherever you happen to be, you can just look at somebody who's not how you think it should be, and if you're in that category, then the, uh, the dart goes towards yourself. Certainly in spiritual life, it's just as prevalent, you know. My meditation, hey, that was a pretty good meditation I had. <laughs> that was pretty cool. You know, I think... Uh, I think I'm getting this. Gee, you know? <laughs> you know? I hope other people are as clear as I am. You know? <laughs> or, you know, the other side. My mind is just everywhere. Everybody here is sitting like a Buddha statue, and I am freaking out, you know? <laughs> or I am just on Mars. You know? It's so easy to 
judge yourself and evaluate your spiritual progress or lack of progress. It's very, very painful. And then it, it's almost like it's the, it's, the, it's the thing that you turn to for solace that then becomes another yardstick on how you're either not measuring up or you're better than. Happens up there on the retreats. How many people here have done retreats? Just Okay, so maybe about half. Well, if you go up there uh, and get on that side of the, the meditation experience, you really see it you know, in neon lights, comparing mind everywhere. You know, God, look how slow she's walking. <laughs> I could never do it like that. Or, who does she think she is? You know, Miss Mindfulness walking like a zombie <laughs> over there. Yeah. You go into the to the dining room and it's rampant, you know, because you know people are either piling it on their plates or being so fastidious, and you look like a klutz or feel like one inside. And a lot of that is about presentation. You know, how am I coming off? On this one retreat, I I was getting into uh, just walking quite slowly, because it's, it's really delightful when you get in that gear and it's just happen, happening naturally. And I'd be all by myself and just really enjoying the, the practice, just lifting, moving, placing, lifting, just really sinking into that speed. If I was all alone, it would just be so enjoyable. Somebody else would come. And all of a sudden, I had a different reason for doing that slow walking. And I, after a while, started to uh, insert, in all honesty, my, my genuine experience with another note. And I would just be noting, lifting, moving, looking good, lifting, <laughs> moving, looking good, looking good, you know, looking. After a while, it was like, that's what I was saying more than lift, because that was what was happening. It's so humbling, but it's not like you're doing that more because you're on retreat. You just see the prevalence of that attitude of mind that much more clearly. We come from a very competitive culture, as I think most everyone would agree. There is a price to pay for being the lone superpower, you know. And even when we weren't, it wasn't so obvious, you know, we would be in competition, you know, we're number one, U.S. is number one, and, you know, that, you can see the effects that come when you present yourself in that way. I'm better than, look at that, and you incur a whole lot of Hatred, criticism, there's an arrogance to it. Reminds me, I, I don't know, Jack has probably told this story. It just occurs to me about this monkey who um, 
has a great skill. He's the leader of the, this horde of, of monkeys, and he's very, very adept at, um, at catching things. And this, uh, the king's uh, army comes, and uh, they, um, they see there's all these monkeys, and they, uh, they take their arrows. You know, one of them, the king, sees this monkey, and he's like this. And the, the, um, the king shoots the arrow, and the monkey just grabs it. All the other monkeys, by the way, when they see the, uh, the king's army come, flee. They say, uh-uh, we don't want to hang out here. But there's this one monkey who just likes to show what he can do. King another, shoots another arrow, just grabs it before it hits him. Puffed out chest. One more time, the king shoots big smile on his face. And with that, the king orders the whole army to shoot. That was the end of the monkey. You can see how you set up your own downfall with your arrogance. You know, whether it's my country, or my city, or my class, or my football team, and I should warn you, I should confess, I'm a big football fan. Uh, there's some health to that, you know, if you can. <laughs> if you don't take it too seriously, it can be a good outlet. But it's where people, people are, you know, killing each other over the, um, you know, who won. You know, the, the, you know, the, the Olympics were a perfect example. It was so, the, you could see the great inspiration of, and the aesthetics of competition, and the class that some of the, the, uh, the athletes had, you know, especially those, uh, the Canadians and the, and the Russians, where they just came up and they were all on the podium together and, and just beaming and feeling good about yeah, for me, that was the high point of the Olympics, where you could really appreciate goodwill. Or there's the complaining and the, all, the, uh, all the inside politics. You, know, you see the best and the worst in that. So our culture, particularly, even though this has been talked about for thousands of years, it, it breeds that this sense of independence and competition and being number one in, in a way that a lot of other cultures don't. Now, it's interesting. You don't go into a forest and expect every tree to be exactly alike. And if one tree is different, you know, you don't say, it's too bad there's that gnarled old tree. You know, it's not as straight as the other ones. Right? Oh, there's that young, there's that small tree, you know, not as robust. Wow, look at that huge one. That's the best tree in the forest. You don't do that. At least I don't do that, you know. <laughs> every, every tree together 
comprises the beauty of the forest. Same with, you know, the flowers and everything in, in them, everything that's contained in the forest. But somehow when it's with us, when it's with people, we kind of pigeonhole an idea of what the best in whatever your particularly vulnerable category is, and then we give ourselves a report card, and usually we're pretty hard markers. This can happen uh, in uh, competition as far as practice, too. I remember on one, the first time I did a long retreat, uh, you know, there's these long retreats, three-month retreats every fall. The first time I did one of these long retreats, I just kind of, I had all this energy, and I was, figured, okay, I'll stay up. If other people can stay up, I'll stay up, you know, and I, but I wanted to be the last one. You know, <laughs> just, okay, if they're, if they're awake, I'll be awake. And after, night after night, this kept on happening and just, I saw, there's something off here, you know, and I went to my teacher saying, you know, I'm, I'm staying up, I'm practicing, but there's this part that wants to be the best one. And he told me, oh, I did exactly the same when I was, when I was, uh, in my earlier days of practice, he said, it's okay, you know, just notice the, the judging thoughts, the comp- competition thoughts, and stay there. He said he once, he had this, uh, um, uh, this agreement with himself that as long as this other yogi was, uh, was up and had his light on, they were in separate, uh, uh, separate rooms, that he would stay up. Right? <laughs> and he, was, he couldn't believe this guy just never went to sleep, you know. <laughs> And then it turned out the guy slept with his light on. (laughs) The pain, the pain that was involved in that, just by a thought, I will do it, you know, I'll be the best. And it has um, a lot often to do with how we want to appear in the world that maybe we'll be good enough if we're if we're better than, you know. Maybe other people will think we're okay and tell us you're really okay. The the paradox, though, is that the more you want approval from others by being a little bit better than who you are, how do you feel around somebody like that? It's got to be a little bit more than who they are so that they'll catch your eye and impress you. It's very unimpressive, isn't it? Whereas when you're around somebody who's just themselves, think of somebody who you know who's not trying to impress anybody, who's just real and authentic and at ease with themselves. That's a person you want to hang around with. That's very impressive. As it says in, uh, in Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, Suzuki Roshi's uh, beautiful book, the introduction is uh, uh, this woman who's talking about all the amazing qualities of this man, Suzuki Roshi. And she talks about his you know, great wisdom and uncanny perspicacity and uh, deep 
openness of heart and emptiness. She says, but you know, in the end, it's not his extraordinariness that amazes. It's his utter ordinariness. And in his utter ordinariness, Aroshi or someone like that becomes a mirror for us and allows us to see who we really are. But we get caught in this little paradox, thinking we've got to be a little bit more than ourselves. Happens to you know Dharma teachers certainly you know the comparing mind and you know you and my when I first started um, teaching this is about 20 years ago, 20 years ago, uh, and I would go on these retreats and, you know, we, we have team teaching. We had, we'd have, you know, one night Joseph Goldstein would, would give the talk, who's my teacher and who's, you know, who's an amazing um, embodiment of wisdom and compassion and, um, you know, quite a, a powerful speaker. He'd give the Dharma talk one night. Then Jack, who I'm sure you all know, would give the talk another night, second night. Then I'd give a talk after that, the third night. You know, this is my first year of teaching. You know, and I was thinking, if I were in the audience, I'd be saying, "Get that guy off!" You know, let's get Goldstein back. It's very humbling. You know, but then again, you just you just do it, or if you're sitting. You're giving a talk and somebody is, you know, yawning or rolling or looking at their watch, you know. It does things to the mind, you know. Because we, we want to be okay, we want to be good. Here's a, a passage I really love from Ajahn Sumedho about giving Dharma talks. This is partly an excuse to read this passage. When I was young, I was very self-conscious. To say something in public was absolutely terrifying for me. This is Ajahn Sumedho is one of the uh, one of the mo- the highest, er, most highly respected Western monk and the highest ranking Western monk uh, in Theravadan Buddhism. And he comes here and teaches uh, every few years. He's extraordinary. It's absolutely terrifying for me. Even when I was in the Navy, just having to raise my voice to say, aye, aye, sir, in public, in a roll call, would have me shaking because of self-consciousness. Then I became a school teacher, teaching eight or nine-year-old Chinese kids in North Borneo for a couple of years. That wasn't such a threat. But then becoming a monk in Thailand and eventually having to give talks to Thai people in Thai, all this self-consciousness became apparent. The highs you get when you felt you'd given a good talk and everybody says, you're really good, Sumedho. You can give good Dhamma. Then someone, I would, sometimes I'd give a really stupid talk and think, I don't want to give another talk ever again. I didn't become a monk to give talks. But the idea was to keep watching this. Ajahn Chah would always encourage me to keep aware of the pride, the conceit, the embarrassment, and the self-consciousness that I'd feel. And, unfortun- and fortunately, in Thailand, people are such that they are just grateful for a monk giving a talk. Even if it's not a very good talk, it doesn't seem to upset them much. They still seem quite grateful about it. 
So that made it quite easy. One time, however, at a, an all-night ceremony where we had to sit up all night, a katina ceremony, Ajahn Chah said, Sumedho, you have to give a talk for three hours tonight. <laughs> up till that time, I'd only given, I've only given a talk for half an hour. And that was a strain, but three hours, and he knew. With Ajahn Chah, I always felt that if he said something, I'd do it. So I sat up on the high seat and talked for three hours. I had to sit there and watch people get up and leave. And I had to sit there and watch people just lie down on the floor and sleep in front of me. And at the end of the three hours, there were a few polite old ladies left sitting there. That wasn't Ajahn Chah saying, okay, Sumedho, go in there and bowl them over with some scintillating stuff, entertain them, really sock it to them. I began to realize that what he wanted me to do was to be able to look at this self-consciousness, the posing, the pride, the conceit, the grumbling, the lazy, the not wanting to be bothered, the wanting to please, the wanting to entertain, the wanting to get approval. All of these have come up during these talks of the past 15 years. But the meditation is one in which more and more one feels a real understanding of the suffering of a self-view. And then through that insight, one realizes the abiding in emptiness. We compare ourselves to others and we also compare ourselves to our own high standards. I was clearer last time. My meditation is just not working. Or, hey, now I got it. You You have no control over what comes through. You ever notice that? You sit down and say, I'm going to be concentrated and clear. Good luck. And then you might try and try, and then you let go of trying, you just say, okay, I'll just sit here. And all of a sudden, hey, here I am. Just when you least expect it. You can't do that in order to trick it. Oh, I'll just give it up so that... No, 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 no. It doesn't work like that. You can't trick... It knows you can't trick it. But when you least expect it, when you don't have an agenda, things just unfold on their own. That's often how life works. That usually is how life works. The conceit of I am, or this comparing mind, is really rooted in fear. The feeling that says, I'm not enough, that says, I'm not complete in who I am. And so to really start addressing that means to understand and see clearly this tendency of somehow mistakenly thinking that you're not complete, that you're not enough. The idea, the, the habit of getting caught in a judgment of being unworthy 
is incredibly prevalent in our society. Do you have in your mind an if only? If only I what had straighter hair or was a little bit sharper or was a little bit less of a klutz or whatever it is, taller, shorter, whatever, somehow it's feeling that this form of life doesn't quite make it. And one of the, the big hurdles that most every meditator faces and needs to um, understand, see through, is this tendency to judge ourselves. It's so painful. And to um, come to terms with any quality of unworthiness that we have. A number of years ago, this is uh, in 1979, I did one of these longer retreats and at the end of the, the three-month course, um, His Holiness the Dalai Lama came and visited, um, which is a great way to end a three-month retreat. <laughs> there you go. Thought, oh, okay. Uh, you know, I guess my merit you know, came to fruition all of our collective merits. And um, it was in this one memorable exchange, one of the people sitting the retreat said, um, do you have any advice on dealing with all of these feelings of unworthiness that I have? And the Dalai Lama had not quite gotten that concept before. And it was you know, maybe if you're told from the time you're a year and a half that you're the embodiment of compassion and wisdom, you've got a good self-esteem. You know. yeah. But it's, it's also very much in Tibetan culture and in Asian cultures, you know, of course. You know, it, it, it's not an issue. Anyway, it went back and forth with the translator trying to explain to him this idea of unworthiness. What, what do you mean? And then finally, he got it. And he looked at this, uh, this person who asked the question, and he said, you're wrong. <laughs> you're absolutely wrong. Can you imagine the Dalai Lama telling you, after two and a half months, you're wrong. You know? <laughs> but he said it with incredible compassion. He said, you're wrong. You're absolutely wrong. What makes you think that everything else is part of the universe and part of life is this manifestation of life in that form and somehow you don't belong or you're a mistake or you're not good enough. It was a very uh, powerful moment for all of us. Personally, for me, it, was, it just hit me. Oh, of course. Is a quote I came across. Believing, it's an anonymous quote, I don't know who said it. Believing your littleness is arrogant because it's preferring our own opinion to God's. Isn't that great? 
not good enough. It, it's, it's insulting to the Dharma, you know, or God, or whatever you call it, as if you didn't belong. Now, you probably heard, or maybe, and perhaps practiced, loving-kindness, the metta practice, this cultivation of a good heart and well-wishing for all beings. And it starts with, towards yourself. The Buddha said you can look all over the world and not find anyone more worthy of loving-kindness than yourself. And it's essential to understand and to develop that capacity to love yourself because then you're coming from a place of generosity and abundance as you practice loving-kindness towards others. It's not like you're looking for something from them, but there's an outpouring, a generative expression, which is what metta is. Metta, the near enemy of metta, probably a number of you are familiar with this, the near enemy, what looks as love and loving-kindness, but is very different, is attachment, where there's a contraction and you want something from someone else. But true loving-kindness is this outflowing. And in order to develop the most powerful loving-kindness, it starts with yourself. Now. Let me just ask you, if you met someone who had your tastes, got your jokes, had your sense of humor, had your take on life, right? if you met somebody who really saw things the way you did and got it, your perspective on the world, how would you feel about meeting someone like that? I'd be ecstatic, wouldn't you? (laughs) Somebody who really gets it. But the, the trick is, or the deception is, that somehow when it's in this being, that we're bound in, it's not good enough. If you met somebody and they were outside of your skin, you'd be delighted. But somehow, in your skin, it's a whole different story. What if I'm seen through? What if they find out who I really am? That's painful. You don't expect that from other people to be perfect. Albert Einstein has this beautiful phrase that, that applies to this. He, he, calls, uh, he calls this something like this, an optical delusion of consciousness. Where somehow inside we, are, we don't give ourselves the same benefit of the doubt that we would give to everybody else. So the task, as the, the Dharma practice invites us to explore, is seeing who we really are. Seeing who we really are. Now, on the most fundamental level, the Buddha taught 
who we really are can be understood through this body and this mind process, what he called five aggregates. Probably Jack has gone through this with you uh, before. But the five, just briefly, are this body, form, rupa, and the mind, which is comprised of um, feeling, the feeling tone of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. We have that take in every moment of experience. Perception, which files things according to memory and recognizes, oh, bell, oh, man, woman, building, form, uh, feeling, perception, mental formations, all the thoughts and emotional reactions that we have, the moods that come through us, and the consciousness that registers them. Hearing consciousness, seeing consciousness, tactile consciousness, the five physical senses and the, the sixth sense door, the mind. That's it. Form, feeling, perception, mental formations, and consciousness. And the, uh, these are called the five aggregates or five skandhas. That's who we are. Basically, we are this pattern of physical experiences, one sensation after another, and thoughts and moods, one after another after another, that we somehow take to be solid, me, I, not realizing that we are this process of experience. And we get confused in thinking, oh, there is some abiding self to whom it's all happening. This is called grasping at these aggregates, and that's where the sense of self is created. The skanda of perception is really the, um, um, the source of the comparing mind, because it recognizes things and then files it in comparison to everything else that it's that it's seen. But if you can see through that perception, through the comparison, which is possible, to simply see this unfolding just as it is, even though it's a bell, it's not necessarily, oh, that's the best bell in the world, or that's not as good as another bell. It's just a bell. Maybe you like one better than another, but to start comparing its intrinsic value, this is the mind getting caught in that evaluation. So on one level, that's who you really are. On a deeper level, when you really see through this illusion of self, you see through to something much more profound and vaster. Sometimes when people hear the notion of anatta, the selfless nature of experience, they think, oh, 
that means I'm going to disappear. That sounds scary, which it is a little unsettling. But it's the good news is you see, you understand that you're much faster than you ever thought. You're perfect. How could you be otherwise? This is again from Ajahn Sumedho. He says, um, What is divinity? We may consider ourselves as purely instinctual creatures because we have an animal body with animal instincts and nature the same as an animal. But for reflection on divinity, we have beautiful, selfless qualities that can manifest through this human form when there is no self. When you're not caught in ignorance, when all that process of self-view ceases, then the divinity is obvious. Then kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and serenity of mind are not something that we have to get, but something that manifests through these forms. And he calls this the shining through of the divine. That's how it works, isn't it? When we are not in the way wondering if we're good enough and not being self-conscious, there's a love that has the chance to be expressed. There is the awareness, the pure awareness that receives the world. There is kindness. There's wisdom. And that's a lot of what I see the the meditative process pointing to, that as you quiet down the mind enough, the chatter in the mind, and you cut through the illusion of self, you touch a place in you that is wise, that is the Buddha. All you need to do is not be confused by the thoughts that get in the way. And then there is that shining through of the divine. And it's a bodhisattva act, a gift to everyone, the more you understand your true nature, who you really are. And if you are a little bit timid because you don't know if you're good enough, You don't do anybody a good service. I heard this one Tibetan teacher many years ago saying, timidity is just another ego trip. Oh, I'm not quite good enough. It's another stance that we take. And here's a, a quote that probably many of you are familiar with that Nelson Mandela read it as inaugural speech. Marianne Williamson wrote it. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, and fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? You're a child of God. Your playing small doesn't serve the world. There's nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We were born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us. It's not just in some of us, it's in everyone. 
And as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. So it's a, it's a tremendous gift that we can give others as well as ourselves by starting to see through this comparing and judging mind to the truth of who we are. How can we work with this such, so deeply conditioned habit? want to share a few um, aspects from Dharma practice because obviously, you know, it's a long road to hoe until you're fully enlightened, so it's good to have a few uh, tricks in your bag and attitudes to keep in mind. First, it's essential that we practice forgiveness for ourselves. Just seeing how prevalent and how strongly conditioned that habit of judging is and seeing, oh, it's just a habit of mind. I'll share with you another retreat story that really drove this home. Uh, this is, again, on one of these longer co- courses and Again, it was a walking meditation. I was going, you know, really slowly, just nobody around, just creeping along, having a great time. And I decided to see how slowly I could go, just for the fun of it, you know. Like Marcel Marceau, you know, it felt like, you know. Oh, it's so sweet, yes, yes. And in the middle of this exercise, somebody came in to the walking room, who had just come onto the retreat in those early days. I don't know why they did this. They used to tack on a two-week retreat at the end of a three-month course. And you could really feel the energy difference. There I was. I wasn't going to change my game. You know, lift, just, you, you know, very slowly. And I knew this was going to look very strange to this person. And after about two minutes, they bolted out of the gym. What I thought was like, you know, frustration seeing how slowly I was going. And the thought occurred to me as they passed my field of vision, wow, I really blew her mind. She must think I'm a great yogi. And from that very balanced, very serene sense of contentment, it was like I opened up to this trap door of disgusting ego and image and presentation and, ooh, look at me and all of that. And... I became like a caged tiger. And in fact, I started pacing back and forth. My God, I've been doing this for two and a half months and there's all this ego and image. I'll never get rid of it. And I did that for a little while. And then it occurred to me in a moment, the millions and millions of times 
I had had that kind of thought before of ego and presentation and hoping to look good. And if you relate to more than one lifetime, which I do and did, I had millions and millions of times in this lifetime, but I had millions of lifetimes, you know, it just boggled my mind. And from that frustration and self-condemnation, there was this wave of compassion that said, what did I expect? I was going to undo all of that conditioning in a few months? That was much more profound and important than seeing how slowly I could go. So when you see that habit of mind, just see it as that, as a habit. It's just a habit. It's just the tape that got pressed. And forgiveness starts with understanding the depth of the conditioning that we're up against. One way to practice forgiveness, if you use the the mindfulness practice is noticing the tone that you're judging, that you're no, that you are noticing the judging thought. You know, you can sit there and say, you know, oh, I've been thinking, oh, that was a judgment. I'm not supposed to be judging. <laughs> that was another judgment. <laughs> judging, <laughs> judging. You know, there's no end to that. You can put one layer on top of another. But in any moment, you can see and recognize, oh, it's just judging. And in the softness of the tone, you change your relationship to the experience. Oh, judging, judging, it's okay. So it starts with forgiveness. Second aspect is seeing how empty those thoughts are. Thoughts come out of nowhere. I used to ask the first few years of practice, where did thoughts come from to every teacher that I sat with? Nobody ever gave me the definitive answer. Thoughts come all on their own, and you don't have any control over them. If you did, you'd probably only have kind, noble, loving thoughts of saving humanity, and there's probably a few others that creep through in there. And to see that, to see how empty they are, it gives tremendous relief and release. And you can start to have some humor about it. My teacher Joseph has a very excellent practice. He says, if you're bothered by your thoughts and you're sitting in a group of people meditating, just imagine they're coming from the person behind you. Doesn't it take away the whole drama, you know? It's not my problem. It's not your problem. For all intents and purposes, they are. They're just thoughts coming through, completely unbidden. You don't say, oh, let's have some rage now. You know, I could really go for some rage. How about a bout of doubt, you know? (laughs) They just come on their own, completely unbidden, and they go as well having some humor around it is also tremendously helpful. Because when you can laugh at the absurdity of it, then you don't take it so personally. 
on one retreat, I started to um, catch the judging thoughts and take some humor uh, with them and just see. Every time I'd notice a judging thought, I'd say this line from the Third Zen Patriarch, the, 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 the um, uh, what's it? Judging, judging mind um, brings annoyance and weariness. The burdensome practice of judging brings annoyance and weariness. Okay, now that rang true for me. So every time I'd have a judging thought, I'd just kind of tack on the burdensome practice of judging. And I'd go to the, the dining room, and there it would be, you know, oh my goodness, look at how much food they're putting on. The burdensome practice of judging, you know. <laughs> oh God, I just dropped my fork. And I'd go through a meal 50, 75 times at least, just as I started to notice that. And after a while, it became completely, you know, a game. It's, 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 it's absurd. But if you can change it from, oh, look at my mind, to, oh, look at the mind, look at the mind that we all share, then there's no problem with it. When you can take refuge in the Buddha, this is another aspect of working with the judging mind. Because taking refuge in the Buddha means your own Buddha nature, where you are already wise and pure. And this is simply a process of allowing for that goodness and that wisdom to emerge. The Buddha says, Luminous is this mind, brightly shining, but it is colored by attachments that visit it. This unlearned people do not really understand, and so do not cultivate the mind and heart. Luminous is this mind, brightly shining, and it is free of the attachments that visit it. This the noble follower of the way really understands and for them there is cultivation of the mind and heart. This is who we really are, and when you see it, when you just get a glimpse of it, even if, you, if it's just an idea to start acting as if you were the Buddha is a beginning, and eventually you grow into that, particularly as you pay more mindful attention, because that is what frees the mind from its confusion. As you see that, you see, what is it that you're comparing beyond your body and your form and your... We all have our own unique gifts, but what is it that we're comparing? When you get down to it, what is it that really matters? Our love? our awareness. Now can you say, when you really go to the source of it, the love that comes through me, my love is better than his love. It's just love coming through us. Or the awareness that sees, that pure awareness before we get into this whole drama of 
self and personality, can you say, my awareness is better than your awareness? It's just awareness seeing itself, knowing itself. It's just this play of consciousness that manifests through these forms. That doesn't mean to deny your own uniqueness, but it means to both see through it to the essence, to the, to the source of everything, and to appreciate the particular package that it comes through you. This is a, a, a lovely uh, passage that, um, I don't know, Jack might have read this, but um, it's from Martha Graham to Agnes de Mille. It's beautiful pointing to this paradox of the absolute and the relative. She says, there is a vitality, a life force, a quickening that is translated through you into action. And because there's only one of you in all time, this expression is unique. And if you block it, it will never exist through any other medium and will be lost. The world will not have it. It is not your business to determine how good it is, nor how valuable it is, nor how it compares with other expressions. It is your business to keep it yours clearly and directly, to keep the channel open. And this is where both the absolute and the relative come together. There is something quite extraordinary and unique about how life has manifested through this form called you. And there is also something quite transcendent about what it is that is manifesting through through your heart, and through your mind, and through your wisdom. And when you see that, the comparing mind, the judging mind, falls away. There's no comparison, in the best sense of the word. There's no comparison. So, I hope you can uh, keep your sense of humor and work with the judging mind in a light way.